I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Pretoria, South Africa. Pretoria is one of the three capital cities in South Africa, serving as the administrative capital and the seat of the executive branch of government, as well as the host for all foreign embassies located in the country. The city has many well-kept landmarks and is adorned with large parks and gardens, graceful government buildings, and wide avenues of purple flowering jacaranda trees. Before becoming Great Britain's Prime Minister in 1940, Winston Churchill was a resident of Pretoria when he was imprisoned there during the Anglo-Boer War before escaping captivity. The post-World War II boom is evidenced by skyscrapers around Church Square. Although Pretoria is primarily a seat of government, it is also an important rail and industrial center. Economic activities include engineering, food processing, and diamond mining. Although some residents of Pretoria are extremely wealthy and enjoy a high standard of living, the city has a high crime rate. As a consequence, those who can afford it live in walled communities. But in 2013, Pretorians were shown that sometimes the greatest danger comes from within the walls. On August 4, 2012, history was made at the London Summer Olympics. In the opening heat of the men's 400-meter race, one of the five runners was South African sprinter Oscar Pistorius, nicknamed Blade Runner. His nickname came from the carbon fiber prosthetics he used for competitions and was the first double amputee to compete in track events at the Olympic Games. He became an instant worldwide celebrity. Five months later, Pistorius once again made worldwide headlines when he was arrested for murder. Oscar Pistorius was born in November 1986 with deformed feet and missing his fibula in both legs. This is the bone between the calf and the ankle. When he was born, his parents, Hank and Sheila, were told that he would never be able to walk and he would be in a wheelchair for his entire life. But his parents were not willing to accept this diagnosis and began visiting orthopedic surgeons to determine what their options were. They met with a number of orthopedic surgeons and heard a variety of suggestions ranging from amputating at the top of each leg to only removing the lower third of his leg and leaving the shin bone or the tibia intact. So when Oscar was 11 months old, his parents made the difficult decision to remove the lower portion of his leg. At the surgeon's recommendation, the surgery was scheduled so that it would be around the time when Oscar would naturally start walking, so all he would ever know was walking with prosthetics. Oscar got his first set at 14 months old. The three Pistorius children, older brother Carl, middle child Oscar, and younger sister Amy, had a very middle-class upbringing. Oscar was not treated any differently than his siblings, and his parents worked very hard not to be overprotective of him. Every morning, Carl and Amy put their shoes on before school, and Oscar put on his prosthetic legs. He has said that he and his siblings were raised with one iron rule, No one was allowed to say, I can't. Oscar was an energetic kid who channeled his energy into sports like hiking, biking, wrestling, and water skiing. His parents divorced when he was six years old. Mr. Pistorius apparently walked out of the house and just abandoned the family, but his brother stepped in to help financially support things. This allowed Oscar and his family to stay in their house, and then Oscar was actually sent to the elite Pretoria Boys High School. 
I believe that's the same high school that Elon Musk graduated from. Are you serious? I am. How do you know that random ass information? I know things. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> huh. I waste a lot of time. What's the age difference in these two? Do you have any idea? Um, I believe it's about 15 years. Interesting. Okay. When Oscar was 15, his mother, with whom he was very close, died from an allergic reaction to medication. Naturally, Oscar and his siblings were devastated and they had to go live with their mother's sister, their aunt. The following year, Oscar suffered a serious knee injury while playing rugby at school and the doctor suggested that he take up running as part of his rehabilitation. And the rest is history. In January 2004, just a few weeks after the now 17-year-old Oscar began seriously training for races, his 100-meter dash time easily surpassed the Paralympic world record. Six months later, he was fitted with his first set of carbon fiber blades, which is how he got the nickname Blade Runner. He went on to compete at the 2004 Summer Paralympic Games in Athens, Greece, where he won a gold medal in the 200-meter with a record-setting time. He also won a bronze in the 100 meter. After these decisive victories at the Paralympics, Oscar began competing in races in South Africa against able-bodied athletes. His success in these races led to widespread press coverage and caught the attention of race organizers in Europe. However, in January of 2008, the International Association of Athletics Federations, IAFF, which is track and field's governing organization, banned him from able-bodied competitions because they received complaints that Oscar's carbon fiber blades gave him an unfair advantage. The IAFF, which had conducted scientific tests with Oscar, decided that his blades enabled him to use less energy than able-bodied athletes while covering the same distance, and therefore Oscar was able to run faster. Oscar appealed the ruling, and in May 2008, the Court of Arbitration struck down the original decision. The court found that any advantages gained by a runner on the lightweight blades were offset by the difficulties they presented on the starting block and on the curved sections of the track. As a result, the ban disallowing Oscar to compete against able-bodied athletes was lifted. The IAFF's decision to lift the ban came too late for Oscar to make the cut for the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing, so instead, he set his sights on 2012, scheduled to take place in London. In the meantime, he picked up medals at the World Championships and the Paralympics World Cup. In the spring of 2012, now 25-year-old Oscar Pistorius realized his ultimate dream when he qualified for the 400-meter race at the London Olympics. While he was eventually eliminated in the semifinal round, he secured his place in history by becoming the first amputee athlete to compete in track events at the Olympics. Oscar was feted by the press and became an international celebrity. He was a household name, not just in his home country of South Africa, but across the world. He also became an inspiration to people with disabilities. You know, Kath, I was actually surprised. I remember following this story back in 2012 at the mm -hmm. Olympics. And I actually, in my mind today, thought he won at the Olympics. Same here. Same here. And I was shocked when he didn't. But, you know, I realized I was, as I was researching further is that he was actually competing against Usain Bolt if he had made it oh. to the finals. But yeah, I, I thought he won something. I did too. He won the hearts of everyone. That's exactly right. Okay, and really quickly, this does remind me of a story. So every year the Olympics runs, we're on vacation at that time. Oh yeah, It's totally. always August of the year that we go to the... Always at the lake. Right, the best lake. Mm -hmm. And shockingly, most years the TV never works. <laughs> and all of the kids who are there, and there's probably eight to ten of them who are usually there, 
they tried the plug and didn't work. We actually would also flip remote batteries so that the remote wouldn't work. But every four years, it did work for us at night when we were off the lake to watch the Olympics. Exactly. They never realized that we were sabotaging the TV the whole time Mm -hmm. because we didn't want them inside the house. It's totally annoying seeing kids watching TV when you're at a lake. Exactly. Yeah. So my kids would be like, can you just rent a cabin maybe that has a TV that works? I'm like, "Okay, I'll try again next year. We'll see. But every four years we did get a cabin with a TV that worked. Yeah. So we were able to watch the Olympics. But it was only when the adults wanted to watch TV that the TV worked. Exactly. It was somehow. There was a ghost. Exactly. There was a ghost. It was Elmer. (laughs) Several months after the Olympics, in November of 2012, Oscar began dating 29-year-old Reva Steenkamp, a model and commercial actress who appeared on several celebrity reality TV shows in South Africa. She was also a smart woman. She had earned a Bachelor of Laws degree from the University of Port Elizabeth. So Oscar and Reva are now a big celebrity couple, and they're seen hanging out with sort of like an A-list crowd in Johannesburg. Soon, Reva was staying with Oscar at his home in Pretoria several nights a week. The residential neighborhood where he lived was called Silverwoods Country Estate, and it was described as a high-security gated complex completely surrounded by a 10-foot-high wall, an electric fence, and a guarded entrance with regular security patrols. But even with all those extra layers of security, Oscar was very diligent about ensuring that his windows and doors were locked at night. Kath, I read that he was sort of, uh, not paranoid, but just really diligent because he was afraid that his celebrity made him more of a target than some of his neighbors. And so he was constantly taking precautions because in Pretoria, apparently robberies of wealthy people inside their homes were very prevalent at the time. Just a few weeks later, in the early morning hours of Valentine's Day 2013, Oscar frantically called emergency services to report that he mistook his girlfriend for an intruder and accidentally shot her. He also spoke with Johann Stander, the manager of the Silverwoods community, who arrived soon after at Oscar's house. When Mr. Stander walked in the house, he saw Oscar carrying a blood-covered Reva down the stairs. According to Mr. Stander, Oscar laid Reva out on the floor and was telling her over and over to stay with him. She was making gurgling sounds, and Mr. Stander and Oscar tied a tourniquet around her arm to stop the bleeding from one of the gunshot wounds. A doctor who rushed over from a nearby house took one look at Reva and told them that based on her head wound, there was nothing they could do for her. Almost an hour later, Detective Hilton Botha, a 24-year veteran of the South African Police Service, was awakened by a phone call from his colonel who told him Oscar has shot his girlfriend. Fifteen minutes after the call, Detective Botha was at Oscar's home in Pretoria. According to a May 2013 Vanity Fair article by Mark Seal, one of the first things Detective Botha saw when he walked in the front door was the body of Reva Steenkamp. There was a lot of blood, and Reva's body was at the bottom of the staircase covered in towels. The detective stepped around Reva's body and went up the marble staircase to the master bedroom where the shooting had occurred an hour earlier. The crime scene was actually in the ensuite bathroom. There was no door separating the ensuite from the master bedroom, but there was a separate space within the ensuite with a door for the water closet where just the toilet was located. Inside this water closet was a small exterior window. The water closet door was riddled with bullet holes and had been broken down. Oscar told detectives he had bashed open the door with a cricket bat after realizing that Reva was locked inside. The bloodied cricket bat was on the bathroom floor along with two cell phones and a 9mm handgun. 
Oscar told Detective Botha that Reva had been staying at his house for the past couple days. In the middle of the night, he said he woke up and realized the fans he placed on the balcony before going to bed were still running and his balcony doors were still open. He got up to bring the fans in and lock the doors when he heard a noise coming from the ensuite bathroom. Oscar said that he whispered to Reva to call the police and, without putting on his prosthetic legs, he got his gun and went into the bathroom to confront the intruder. He did not see anyone but heard the noise again from behind the closed water closet door. He went up to the door and yelled, Get the F out of my house! several times before firing four times through the closed door. Oscar believed the intruder had entered through the water closet window. It was only after he heard a gasp from behind the door that he realized he had shot Reva. He tried to open the door, but it was locked, and it was at that point he got his cricket bat and broke it down. According to Detective Botha, from the location of the bullet casings in the bathroom, the detective believed that Oscar had fired at the door from less than five feet away. By standing straight and imagining himself pointing a gun at the door, Detective Botha further believed that the bullet holes were slanted downward, which would indicate that Oscar had been wearing his prosthetic legs, not, as he claimed, that he was on his stumps. And yes, they called them stumps in the trial. But Detective Botha wondered why would anyone enter the area where he believed a burglar was lurking and just begin firing rather than grab his girlfriend and run for cover. Later that morning, Oscar Pistorius was arrested for Reva Steenkamp's murder. He was charged with premeditated murder, and as a result, it required exceptional circumstances for a defendant to be released on bail. At the conclusion of a four-day bail hearing, the magistrate said that the state had not convinced him that Oscar posed a flight risk and released him on bail, which was set at 1 million rand, this is the South African currency, and it was the equivalent of about 113,000 U.S. dollars. Now, after Oscar was arrested, tales of bad behavior, narcissism, and arrogance started being shared with the media from many sources. According to the Vanity Fair article mentioned earlier, some blamed Oscar's attitude of privilege on having grown up white in Johannesburg, which was the largest city in the former South African apartheid state. Now, Kath, remember we talked about Oscar's father, Hank, deserted the family when Oscar was six. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, now that his son is in the news for all the wrong reasons, right. Hank reappears and was giving interviews to anybody who would listen. I wonder if he's related to Meghan Markle's dad. <laughs> privacy. We want our privacy. <laughs> <laughs> Hank said that it was the high crime rate in South Africa that led to the shooting where more than half the population earned less than $65 a month. Now, the rest of the Pistorius family refused to speak to the press because they did not want to cause media sideshows, their words, like the one Hank had created with his comments, because many people understandably considered the comments to be racist. Not only did Hank talk about race, but then he also brought gun ownership into the equation when he was telling the press that he, his brothers and his father reportedly owned a total of 55 guns, which were for hunting and for protection. The quote from Hank was, you can't rely on the police. When you wake up in the middle of the night, the crime is so endemic in South Africa. What do you do if somebody is in the house? Do you think it's one of your family? Of course you don't. So what I'm hearing is that the journalists made big deal about race and guns. That shocks me. <laughs> <laughs> 
there were also several instances of Oscar's proclivity for guns that came to the forefront once he was arrested. For example, two months into his and Reva's relationship, they were eating lunch at a restaurant in Johannesburg with some friends. And Kath, there was a group of them sitting around the table. And all of a sudden, like, pow, this gunshot goes off. Now there's like 200 people in the restaurant. And so what had happened was Oscar asked one of his buddies at the table, hey, are you carrying your gun? And he goes, yeah. He goes, can I see it? So he hands Oscar the gun under the table and tells him there's a bullet in the chamber. Well, the gun goes off under the freaking table. Managers come over. Oscar is supposedly shocked. Everyone's shocked. There's a bullet in the floor. And Oscar asks his friend who gave him the gun, hey, can you take the fall for this? Because I'm too high profile. This will be a nightmare for me. So the friend's like, okay. And they basically apologize to the restaurant owner and leave the restaurant. Also, in early 2009, four years prior to this whole restaurant incident, there was a boat accident in which Oscar slammed his speedboat into a pier. He broke his jaw and several ribs and damaged an eye socket. This accident put him in a three-day coma and he had 180 stitches on his face. However, even though alcohol was later found on the boat, the police never tested his blood levels and authorities declined to prosecute. Well, he was already a celebrity in South Africa. That is very true. So several months after that, Oscar is now arrested for allegedly slamming the door on a woman at his party in Silverwood's country estate. Now, this is the same home where Reva was killed four years later. So what happens, Kath, is two girls come to the party. One of them is girlfriend. One of them just one of her sidekicks. His girlfriend sees Oscar flirting with somebody else. I believe the article called it kissy face. Playing kissy face. <laughs> playing kissy face. Yeah. During the party, the girlfriend confronted him for playing kissy face and he gets angry and becomes very, very verbally abusive. He was saying a bunch of ugly things to her. He chased her and her friend out of his house. But then the friend realizes, oh, wait, I left my purse inside. So she tries to get back into the house. Oscar pushes her outside and slams the door so hard that the glass shattered, cutting her leg. So he gets arrested, but the case against him was dropped. And we don't know why. But we later learn that while he was at the police station, he was signing autographs and posing for photographs with police officers. Of course. Mm -hmm. That's what happened when I got arrested. <laughs> the podcast is big among the police set. Right. <laughs> There was also a story about a night shortly after the 2012 London Olympics. Oscar's friend Darren, this is the guy who gave him the gun in the restaurant, was pulled over for speeding with Oscar and his girlfriend in the car. When the officer saw Oscar's gun lying on the car seat, he picked it up and emptied its magazine onto the floor of the car. Why would he leave the gun on the car seat? I have no idea. That was really never described in any article I read. But my assumption is it's just sheer arrogance. When they were allowed to leave, Oscar was hissed. He thought the police officer had disrespected him by dumping the bullets out. So a few minutes after driving away, Oscar took his gun out, put the bullets back in and shot through the sunroof of the car. As one would do. Yeah. <laughs> if I had a nickel for every sunroof I replaced. <laughs> the girlfriend was scared, but Oscar and his friend Darren thought it was hilarious. Good times were had by all. <laughs> exactly. So, Kath, also at this time, it came to light that Oscar Pistorius did not meet South Africa's individual 400-meter qualifying standard to compete in the 2012 Summer Olympic Games. 
the Minister of Sports and Recreation told a radio station that Oscar's selection was political. Oh my God. I know. Oscar got to the semifinals of the 400 meters and was on the platform in front of 80,000 people with Usain Bolt. And the minister said people did not know where South Africa was until Oscar stood on that platform. He was a disabled athlete competing with the able-bodied, an iconic world figure and inspiration to millions around the world. How pissed are you if you're the guy who got cut? Yeah, no kidding. But that's so ridiculous. Yeah. Like, let's leave politics out of sports, shall we? God. (laughs) That's going to open up a whole new can of worms if we start talking about that. Jeez. (laughs) Trial began in March 2014, just over one year after Reva Steenkamp was killed. Oscar Pistorius had been charged with premeditated murder, a gun charge related to Reva's death, and two additional gun-related charges for some of the separate instances we just discussed. Interestingly, and I found this very interesting, there are no jury trials in South Africa, and there have not been since 1969. So apparently, at that time, the law abolished trial by jury primarily due to fears of racial prejudice by white jurors. So the trial would be heard by one judge and two assessors of the judge's choosing. They could advise the judge, but the judge actually had the ultimate authority. So, Kath, I read that the assessors are attorneys and they are there to help the judge with legal review as the case is going on. So as people are testifying, as things are coming up, they will pipe in and tell the judge information that she might need to know in terms of any of her rulings. That's so interesting. So the trial was historic for a number of reasons. First, the judge, Judge Masipa, was only the second black woman to be appointed judge in South Africa. She started practicing law in 1991 before becoming a judge in 1998. And that's pretty fast, by the way. That's kind of like light years. Prior to her legal career, she was a social worker and a crime reporter. And now she was not specifically chosen for this case. It was just simply assigned to her. So second, this was a historic case because it was the first South African criminal trial to be broadcast live from the courtroom. Now, this was a big deal. And one of the things I read, Kath, was that the judge thought it was a good idea to broadcast the trial because many people had misconceptions about justice applying in the courts in South Africa. And so she wanted this sort of open and transparent, you know, hey, look at us, we can do it too. Which is great. Exactly. So anyway, what she did do was say that any witnesses who did not wish to appear on camera would not be, but the audio would be recorded. So my understanding is that if you had a witness who didn't want to be on camera and many of them did not want to be on camera, the camera was averted, but the audio was still picking up everything so you could hear it. Correct. What they did is they kind of fixed on a place in the courtroom Mm -hmm. and it was off the jury box, kind of looking at the gallery with some of the spectators. Right. And then you would hear it. Yeah. Which one? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I get what you mean. (laughs) But you would still hear the people talking. Right. The trial was played on local radio stations and two South African news providers started a cable channel dedicated entirely to this case. It's OJ. It is OJ. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. 
Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Doctors take field of greens for their own health. Here's Dr. Ryan Green to explain. We're like you, too much fast food, not enough exercise. That's why I take field of greens. The fruits and vegetables in field of greens support my heart, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism for weight loss. And Field of Greens promises your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. Get 15% off with promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. That's promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. Product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The prosecution claimed that Oscar had put on prosthetic legs, walked across his bedroom to the bathroom, and intentionally shot Reva through the door after having had a blowout fight. The defense's position was that Oscar thought Reva was in the bed and that the person in the water closet who came in through the window was an intruder and that Oscar grabbed his gun and without taking the time to put on his prosthetics, he entered the ensuite and began firing shots into the water closet. The trial started with prosecutors calling several of Oscar's neighbors to the stand to testify about hearing a woman scream, followed by several gunshots on the night Reva was killed. One neighbor testified that she heard a man and a woman shouting, adding that the fear she heard in the woman's voice was the fear you feel when your life is being threatened. The defense questioned if the neighbors actually heard what they said or if their memories were altered after conferring with each other about what happened. The defense also insisted that Reva would have been too gravely wounded to scream, so it could not have happened the way some of the neighbors claimed. One of Oscar's girlfriends, Samantha Taylor, testified about Oscar's experience and use of guns. She was the one riding in the car with him and Darren when he shot through the sunroof. The judge adjourned the court twice when Samantha broke down in tears. And Kath, this was really interesting to me. The judge told her and actually several other witnesses who cried on the stand that if she could not compose herself, perhaps she should step down and not testify. Wow. I've never seen that happen before. No. It was almost like quit being an irrational female. You know how women are. Right. I mean, maybe she really was. We don't know. I mean, but, seriously. <laughs> you know, sometimes judges say, would you like to take a break? Or they'll just call a break because they don't want the hysteria. It's because the men don't want to have to deal with the women crying. <laughs> you know it. I know it. Maybe that's it. No. But, they, you know, it's like they don't want the jurors to be influenced. Like, so, I mean, obviously this isn't a jury. This judge could have put aside that emotion herself. So I thought that was interesting as well. Yeah. When it was time for forensic pathologist Gert Saman to testify, Judge Masipa blocked live tweeting and broadcasting for the duration of the testimony, stating Professor Saman's testimony would have an explicit and graphic nature and should not be shown around the world. According to Professor Saman, Reva suffered bullet wounds in her head, hip, and elbow, any of which could have caused her death because of the extent of the bleeding. A bullet that hit the right side of Reva's head fractured her skull and entered her brain. She would have lost consciousness and stopped breathing shortly after the entry of the bullet. I'm assuming this is the wound the nearby neighbor saw when he entered Oscar's house and told Oscar and Mr. Stander that any attempt at resuscitation or stemming the bleeding right. from the arm was unnecessary. Right. Based on the fragments found in Reva's skull, 
the forensic pathologist said Oscar had used black talon bullets, which is a hollow point bullet designed to expand and cause maximum tissue damage. During the forensic pathologist's testimony, Oscar bowed his head, pressing it against the wooden wall in front of him, crying, clasping his hands behind his neck, and holding a white handkerchief. Now, Kath, I need to describe the courtroom to you because it isn't set up like a U.S. court. Well, to you and our listeners. In the U.S. court, you have the prosecution table, you have the defense table, and typically the defendant is at the defense table with his attorneys. Exactly. In the South African court, what happened is that you still have both counsel tables, but in this case, behind the counsel tables is kind of a half pony wall. Like in the U.S., there's a row of seats behind this first pony wall, a second pony wall with another row of seats, and then a third one behind that. Oscar was sitting behind this second pony wall. He was all by himself. There was nobody else in the row with him. There was actually nobody even in the row in front of him on the defense side, only on the prosecution side. So when he leaned forward, he put his hands on the pony wall. So his head is kind of ducked down behind it. So you can see his body, but you cannot see his face at all. So when the testimony started by the forensic pathologist, they gave Oscar a blue bucket that was placed next to Oscar's chair. Now, here's what happened. While the forensic pathologist's testimony was going on and the images were being shown, Oscar wasn't looking at the images. Like I said, his head was down, his hands were braced against the pony wall, but he was crying, crying, crying. The judge never, by the way, interrupted him and asked him if he needed to settle down or stop. Right, right. But could you see his face? You could not see his face. Okay. So you could only see the back of his head. But then you heard him retching. Now, I don't want to try and do it for everybody, but should I? (laughs) (laughs) He was making these really, really gross sounds. Like just vomit sounds. Exactly. And Kath, like he probably did it seven or eight times. Oh my gosh. Now, you couldn't see the bucket. And with the audio, you couldn't hear if anything was actually being deposited in the bucket or if it was being done for effect. Mm Could have gone either way, really, but who knows? Now, at one point, Oscar actually even put his hands over his ears and started rocking back and forth in his chair as he continued to retch into this bucket. I'd give 10 bucks to know if anything was in the bucket. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'd actually give 100 bucks to know. Oh, you fancy girl. I know. It's podcast money, man. It's coming in sweet. (laughs) A police ballistics expert testified that he believed Reva was standing in the water closet on the other side of the door when she was hit in the right hip by the first of the four bullets. She then slumped down kind of into a seating position and the second bullet missed her and ricocheted off the wall, but it bruised her back. She was then hit in her right arm and in the head by the third and fourth shots. After the fourth shot, she collapsed with her head on the toilet seat. The prosecution also admitted evidence that on the night Reva died, Oscar called three people before calling emergency services. One was Johann Stander, the community manager. One was his brother and one was his agent. On April 7th, 2014, the 17th day of trial, the defense opened its case and Oscar took the witness stand. He began with a tearful apology to Reva's family and friends, telling them there was not a moment that he did not think of her family and prayed for them every day. He added that he had tried to put his words on paper many times to write to them, but no words seemed to convey what he was feeling. Oscar testified that he always kept a gun under his bed. And when he heard a noise in the middle of the night, he grabbed the gun and told Reva to call the police. He then realized the noise came from the water closet and the ensuite. And before he knew what he was doing, he had gone over there and fired four shots through the door. 
So Oscar Kath, like you were saying, he was totally crying on the stand. And unlike the witnesses who had testified for the prosecution when they broke down, Mm -hmm. Oscar was sobbing uncontrollably. He was all... (gasps) He had like this big line of snot hanging from his nose. It was so gross. But apparently the judge doesn't like tears because she didn't admonish him for doing it. But she freaking ran off the bench outside of the courtroom. Why? I'm assuming she just doesn't like tears. No, but I mean... Why? Like, did she say courts adjourned? Boom. I didn't even hear her say courts adjourned, although she may have and it was too low for the audio to pick up. You just saw her get up and you saw her run. I know that she was concerned at some point during the trial that he was not able to assist in his defense because he was so hysterical. Was was it like that kind of thing? My impression from when I saw the video Mm -hmm. is that his crying just really upset her. That is bizarre. Yeah. Kath, and one of the things that also happened when Oscar was on the stand is that he had removed his prosthetic legs to stand in front of the door to the water closet, which they had brought to the court for purposes of demonstrating the shooting. So now the world is seeing him without his prosthetics where he's, you know, walking on his stumps over to the store to try to reenact what he did. And the prosecutor's arguments were that this didn't make sense. These bullet holes were too high. You had to have your prosthetics on. And he was like, nope, I didn't. And I was a little unsteady and I was a little this and a little that. And it made him more vulnerable. And that's why he was afraid. Right. Like that's why he put bullets through the door because he didn't have time to get his prosthetics on. And like you said, he was vulnerable. State's prosecutor Nell then cross-examined Oscar. He started by asking Oscar if he'd ever heard the term zombie stopper. Oscar said, no, I haven't. You've never heard it. Have you ever seen it anywhere? No, I haven't. You always know when the prosecutor lines up a bunch of these questions like, "Okay, there's going to be some serious impeachment here. Better be careful what you're going to say. Well, and you're exactly right, because then the prosecutor said, have you ever said it? And Oscar's response was, "Uh, no, not that I can recall. But if you produce a videotape showing me doing it, I guess I'll have to say yes. Wow. (laughs) And that's exactly what the prosecutor did. So as we've mentioned, Oscar had a proclivity towards guns. He would actually go to the shooting range several times a week. And the video that the prosecutor produced showed Oscar shooting a gun at a watermelon. So he shoots the gun, the watermelon explodes, and you hear Pistorius shouting, it's not as soft as brains, but it's a zombie stopper. And then continues to call it a zombie stopper like three or four more times in a row. And I'm sure all of this is relevant to his knowledge of what would happen if you shoot four bullets through a door. Exactly. So the prosecutor then asked Oscar, did you see what happened to the watermelon? It exploded. That's what happened to Reva's head. It had the same effect into her head. Take responsibility, Mr. Pistorius. The prosecutor then showed the court a photograph of Reva's head injuries. Oscar refused to look at the photo and began crying. When the prosecutor insisted that he look, Oscar replied that he did not have to look at the picture because he was there. At the prosecutor's request, Oscar described the moment he fired the gun and said, before thinking out of fear, I fired four shots. I did not intend to shoot anyone. I fired my firearm before I could think, before I even had a moment to comprehend what was happening. I believed someone was coming out of the toilet. Now, as the prosecutor began tearing holes in Oscar's version of events, Oscar told the judge that his memory was not very good at the moment because he was under a lot of pressure defending himself. So remember the reaction she had to him crying and mm-hmm. versus the other witnesses? In response, the judge adjourned the court early and said Oscar was too emotional to continue his testimony. Wow. I bet the prosecutor was upset. On the stand the following day, Oscar was seen repeatedly rubbing his eyes during his testimony. And after a while, he again told the judge that he was tired. 
Judge Masipa told him if the reason he was making so many mistakes in his responses to the prosecution was because he was tired, he needed to tell her. And as a result, the court again adjourned early. The prosecution actually accused Oscar Kath of deliberately breaking down into tearful histrionics to avoid difficult questions. Of course. Yes. Which, by the way, something a jury would see right through. Oh, you totally. Know, were there a jury? Yeah, were there a jury? But yeah, apparently it's... the judge is like his grandma. Yeah. She, oh, she... honey, I'm going to make you some soup and hot chocolate. <laughs> Go tuck into bed. I'll be right there. Are you making mistakes because you're tired? Oh, it's like, honey. no, I'm actually being cross-examined in a murder trial. The defense then called Oscar's three closest neighbors because none of them were called by the state. And so, Kath, the prosecution's witness with the neighbors heard screaming. They were not next door neighbors. They were further away. So anyway, the three witnesses take the stand and all of them testify that they heard a man crying the night Reva was shot and that it was a high pitched cry. And the defense attorneys basically said, hey, this was not a woman. The cry was, in fact, Oscar who screamed like a woman when he was distressed. I'm not sure Oscar appreciated that. Yeah, exactly. A social worker who was assigned to support Oscar from his earliest court appearances was a late addition to the witness list, coming forward only to dispute the prosecution's assertion that Oscar was being histrionic and putting on a show with his emotional outbursts. Now, I thought this was interesting that he had a social worker assigned to him. The defense also called a forensic psychologist who told the judge that Oscar suffered from generalized anxiety disorder and has since his childhood, pointing to the amputation of his lower legs when he was 11 months old, the divorce of his parents when he was six, and the death of his mother at 15. It was because of this that he was so on edge about an intruder being in the house, which compelled him to shoot bullets through the bathroom door. Now, in response, the prosecutor said, wait a second. If this is what you're going to tell everybody, I want him to undergo a mental observation. So the judge ordered a month-long evaluation. Four doctors concluded that Oscar did not suffer from a mental disorder and knew right from wrong. In closing, the prosecution pointed out the inconsistencies of the known facts versus Oscar's testimony of what happened in the early morning hours of that fateful Valentine's Day. Prosecutor Nell said Oscar was guilty of murder, telling the court that the simple action of putting on his prosthetics, getting the gun, and walking into the ensuite indicated premeditation. Oscar had a lot of time for reflection on what he was doing and made up his mind in the bedroom when he armed himself. Whether Oscar believed the person behind the door was an intruder or knew it was Riva, it was murder because he must have known he was likely to kill the person by firing his gun. Prosecutor Nell told the judge that Oscar knew there was a human being in that water closet. He admitted it. You know, Kathy also pointed out that Oscar's assertion that he asked Reva to call the police after he heard a noise lacked credibility. The prosecutor pointed out that Oscar said Reva was laying next to him in bed and he supposedly whispers over to her, call the police, but he doesn't see her. He says the room's too dark. I assume she's there, but I don't see her because it's so dark. And he had told the detectives he wasn't in the bed at the time that he was getting the fans off the balcony. Right. So the prosecutor's like, no, he knew Reva was in the bathroom. They had had a fight and he's pissed off. Lead defense attorney Barry Rue presented closing arguments the following day. He stated that Oscar should have been charged with culpable homicide, which is equivalent to involuntary manslaughter in the U.S., rather than murder. But either way, Oscar should be acquitted. 
His firing of the gun was purely reflexive and was done in self-defense because he thought he and Reva were in danger. He had no motive to kill his girlfriend. Defense attorney Rue also said that the shooting was a stress reaction after a lifetime of vulnerabilities that led to a point at which he'd had enough. That night, Oscar was anxious and acting on his primal fight or flight instinct. After 41 days of testimony, Judge Masipa gave herself just over a month to review all of the evidence. On September 12, 2014, Judge Masipa officially found Oscar Pistorius guilty of culpable homicide in Riva Steenkamp's death and formally cleared him of any murder charges. Kathy, the culpable homicide finding was basically that he was grossly negligent rather than performing an intentional killing. It's a lot lighter. So sentencing took place almost a month later, on October 13, 2014. There were five days of testimony and argument from counsel with respect to sentencing. The defense essentially said, hey, he shouldn't be sent to prison. He was a victim. His true sentence was the loss of the woman he loved. The state, however, argued that he must go to prison for at least 10 years and anything less would be shockingly disproportionate. Now, Kath, as a side note, the judge also found Oscar guilty on only one of the three gun charges, but he was eventually ordered to serve that concurrently, so I'm not getting into it. Okay. During the sentencing phase, Reva's father pleaded for Oscar to be punished for murdering his daughter. He said, I don't wish that on any human being. Finding out what happened, it devastated us. He added that while he and his wife had forgiven Oscar, Oscar needed to pay the price for this crime. One week later, Judge Masipa sentenced Oscar Pistorius to a five-year prison term. And shortly after sentencing, Reva's parents left the courthouse without saying a word to any journalist. As you would imagine, prosecutors immediately filed an appeal, both against the verdict and the sentence, arguing that Judge Masipa misinterpreted the law when she cleared Oscar of murder on the basis that he did not intentionally shoot Reva. Eight months after Oscar's sentencing, this is now June of 2015, Mm -hmm. a decision was made that essentially set the world on fire. Mm -hmm. Everybody was pissed. Mm -hmm. The South African Prison Management Committee recommended that Oscar be released under correctional supervision on August 21st, 2015, after having served one sixth, which is 10 months of his sentence. They said the release was based on good behavior, the fact that he was not considered a danger to the community, and he'd be placed on house arrest for the remainder of his sentence. Okay, which is so ridiculous. The world exploded. Right. I remember this. I remember just the outrage. Like, are you kidding me? He kills this girl and 10 months later, he's on house arrest. What the heck? And around this, and of course, in the newspapers, when reviewing this case, there was a lot of conversation about domestic violence. And so when he was released, they're saying like, wait, why is he not a danger? He has this history of treating women very shabbily, and now he's killed a girlfriend. And at the time, South Africa was the number one country in the world for intimate femicide. And so not only do you have advocates within the country itself, but every single female was, and I'm speaking for all of us, (laughs) but people were outraged and with a good reason. I do remember it was a slap on the wrist. And not only was it a slap on the wrist in terms of what he had done, But also, he was famous. Yeah. So was it all of these things combined? Right. Did they call it femicide? It was not specifically referred to as femicide for his case. Okay. Not by the courts anyway. Right. 
Although there was a lot of pushback about this parole, ultimately Oscar was released on October 19th, 2015, which was 12 months into his sentence, and he was placed on house arrest. And just as a side note, his house arrest allowed for him to leave his house between 7 and noon every day, and it allowed him to compete in track events outside of the country. Seriously? Yeah. The IAFF had said when he was originally going to be released after 10 months Mm -hmm. that he would be allowed to compete when he was no longer in prison. You know, it's like technically he's on house arrest. He is supposed to be, I'm calling it in prison, but I mean, it's like soft prison. It's It's not not, supposed to be. You can go out and get food if you want with your friends. But after this pushback, though, from the world, the IAFF said you don't get to race until all five years are served. Right. As you know, the prosecution filed an appeal when Oscar was convicted for culpable homicide. In December of 2015, this is now two months after Oscar was released from prison, the appellate court ruled that it did not believe Oscar was merely negligent or defending himself. What had happened in the meantime, Kath, is that the prosecution had brought up as part of this appeal Oscar's experience with guns, Mm -hmm. how familiar he was, how many he owned, videotape, the fact that he was at the shooting range two to three times a week, and said he knew what these bullets would do. Right. There was no evidence that suggested Oscar was blind to the fact that death would ensue if I shoot this through the door. Exactly. So what the Court of Appeal did is they directed Judge Masipa to resentence Oscar for murder rather than culpable homicide. So seven months after this Court of Appeal ruling, this is now October of 2016, Judge Masipa resentenced Oscar Pistorius to six years in prison for murder. This was the minimum sentence allowed in South Africa. And by the way, he's been on house arrest all this time. You mean up to this up point? Up till this point. Okay. Once this new sentence was handed down, he then was sent back to prison. What's interesting, though, is that the prosecution again appealed the length of the sentence. Right, because they're pissed. They feel like she's being soft on him. Exactly. So just over a year after Judge Masipa had added that additional year to a sentence, the South African Supreme Court of Appeal added nine years to the sentence, bringing it to a total of 15 years. With all the twists and turns of sentencing, Oscar Pistorius has now served more than half of his sentence for shooting and killing his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. A parole hearing will be held on March 31st, 2023, so just around the corner, and we will keep you posted on the results via social media. Thank you for listening. It's good to be back from Chattanooga. Both of us had a great time. I know we did it in the last episode, but again, we want to thank everybody there who was just so gracious and so welcoming and so hospitable. We had a fantastic time. Exactly. And we love throwing hatchets while we have hatchet in one hand, beer in another. I know that's genius. If you aren't following us on social media, please do. We're at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Killer Destinations Pod on TikTok. TikTok.